0: We invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 4, and verse 9. Romans 4, 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before after he had been circumcised, or was it not after, but before he was circumcised? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to him as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footstep of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Father, thank you so much for your word, and may you help us to take these truths and to understand them and to apply them. May we understand more and more the glorious nature of the God of promises, and Abraham as the fine example of exercising faith in your promises. May you free us from any preconceptions or or misunderstandings that would add to salvation. Uh, May we have a clear understanding of the salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we continue on to unfold what Paul introduced at the end of chapter 3, uh, the glorious truth of the doctrine of justification by faith. If you look at chapter 3 in verse 21 uh, through 26, I want to read this because this is the key transition in the book of Romans. This is the essential fundamental truth of salvation. You must get this right or nothing is right. Right? is unless we understand the theological implications of what God has done in Christ in justification by faith, the Christian life will not be lived the way that he would have us. And this is what we would read in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and come short or fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the most important truth that you will understand in the book of Romans. It is the truth that is outlined in, in three uh, Theological terms that every Christian should know and know to the point of conviction as well as to be able to discuss these things conversationally with the saved as well as the unsaved. And the words are propitiation, and the word is redemption, and the word is righteousness. And those are big words, uh, big truths, uh, and transforming truths. So if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for any length of time and you're not quite sure what propitiation is, please see us. We'll, we'll guide you to right resources is to understand that this is the key passage that opens up the book of Romans. And what and what that has done for us, it takes us into where we are in chapter 4. In chapter 4, the illustration of justification by faith is found in the father of faith, and that would be Abraham. We saw two weeks ago in the first five verses of chapter 4 uh, that would unfold the very important verse 5 of chapter 4 which John Piper would call this the most important verse in justification by faith in the whole of Scripture. And verse 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so as we look at the theological uh, mountains or the high peaks in Romans, let's understand that that is to equip us on the mountaintop so that we come down into the valley of everyday life and that we live these out. Though the, though the theological truths are deep in Romans, they are to be practical steps to Christian living. And so we will see that unfold as we unfold the book of Romans. We find ourselves now in what we read, verses 9 through 17. This whole section is 9 through 25. I chose to break it up in two, uh, two portions uh, by design. The first one is I want us to look at the righteousness, the promise of righteousness by faith for all, showing that Abraham is indeed the father of all in regards to faith. And he illustrates for us how there's nothing you add to salvation. It is all of God, all of faith. Uh, by grace and so we'll look at that today and then we'll next week we'll look at verses 18 through 25 because it's a fascinating section that shows a man who's just like us how he exercised faith on the promises of God when all things look contrary to the promise and you will find in your own life that that's true. sometimes your circumstances have gone south sometimes it doesn't make sense what God has called us to do you may scratch your head well Abraham gives us an example by applying the promise of justification by faith into practical Christian living so we will look at him next week and we'll learn much about him so as we look at this section today verses 9 through 17 this promise of righteousness by faith I want us to first look into the heart of Paul into the heart of Paul And in particular, the pastoral heart of Paul as he writes this letter. It's very important as you read your Bible that you go behind the scenes. And what I say about behind the scenes is that you understand what you're reading. You understand the literature. You understand whether it's a wisdom book. It's a prophetic book. It's narrative. Uh, And in particular with the New Testament, you need to understand the letters. You need to understand the recipients, the, the, the environment, in which they received this letter. What the danger is, is you can't just read the letter and think it's all about you. You know, you have to read it in the context in which it is. And when you put that test to Romans, you will see the, the heart of the Apostle Paul in his pastoral care for these people. And that is a good study to do uh, on your own, is study the life of the Apostle Paul, not just his theology, but his heart. And to see uh, his care for God's people. And what we see in in Romans, and this will lead up to what we're gonna look at, but it's important that we see how he writes. He doesn't write combative, he does write with conviction, and he does write direct to issues, but he doesn't write from a heartless, insensitive combativeness. He doesn't use truth as a sword to cut without healing. And in particular, what we would see in the Apostle Paul, and it's implied through this, is his, impa- his patience with the Jewish Christians. His patience with the Jewish Christians. Now remember the composition of this church. This is a mixed congregation. It's probably 60, 40 Gentile, maybe more. Uh, we can only speculate, but we would. it's safe to say that the majority of the Christians in the Roman church were Gentile. Is that near, uh, Claudius had expelled the Jews, Uh, from A.D. uh, 49 to 54, and so the Jews are just coming back in 54. The letter is written in 57, so there's been this three-year period that they're coming back and mixing into the church. Paul was keenly aware of the mixed congregation and the potential powder kegs of disunity as a result of that. And so he would write and pay a lot of attention in this letter to the Jews, And he would do that in a very patient way. If you remember as he unfolded chapters 2, 3, and 4, is that the Jews would come back at Paul with three arguments. They were attacking his gospel. They were attacking justification by faith. And he did that with three ways. And Paul was very patient in dealing with every one of them. And the first one is that they came to him with the argument that works matter. Works matter in salvation. Well, he would defeat their argument in Romans chapter 3, verse 27 through chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. So the Jews would come and say, well, if works isn't required, then surely circumcision must. There must be ritual. There must be tradition. There must be something that adds to Paul. This can't be. And Paul, in his pastoral care and patience, he would not only handle them well with works, he would also defeat the argument of circumcision in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4. And he did that also, and we'll see that again in chapter 3. So the Jews would then come, and they would say, well, well, excuse me, if it's, if it's not works, if it's not circumcision, then surely keeping the law must matter, Paul. And Paul would come in Romans chapter 3, 19 through 26, as well as verses 13 through 17 in Romans 4, and he would defeat that argument um, by showing faith in the promise. So when we look at Paul, it's important that we we see his heart, because he doesn't come with dogma without compassion. He comes with pastoral care, very patient with the Jews. We also find that um, his pastoral heart was in his commitment to unity, his commitment to unity in the church. Though he addresses potential Jewish problems, he's impartial, and he wants this church to thrive in unity. Yes, he will address the Jewish problem, but if you would go through and circle the how many times that Paul uses the word "all" in referring to everyone in the Roman Church, in the mixed congregation, if you circle the word "all," it appears in fifteen of the sixteen chapters. Paul would include everyone in his instruction while simultaneously knowing that the mixed congregation has potential that he must address from the Jewish community, and he would address the Jewish community again in Romans nine where they had the misconception that their privileged position uh, would, would put them above the Gentiles. In Romans 9, he would say, now wait a minute, no. It's all of God's sovereign election, and it includes Gentile and Jew. And then he would also address in Romans 14, which would extend beyond the Jews, the need not to judge, but to show impartiality, and not to cause others to stumble. So I hope that you see his heart. He wasn't just coming as a teacher with knowledge of theology of justification of faith. He was coming as a pastor who taught justification by faith with a deep concern and love for his people. And it shows again in his his commitment to unity and his patience with the Jewish Christians. And as I was reading Romans and I was thinking, well, how would Paul promote unity? Well, we get uh, get one way, It happened in chapter 1. And that was his commitment to mutual encouragement. commitment to mutual encouragement. He says in Romans chapter 1 verse 11. For I long to see you. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now it's easy to be a teacher or a preacher. And it's all about giving to you. and, 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 And not overly interested in receiving from you. That's dangerous. Is preachers and teachers cannot always be on the output. They have to have input. And they have to have input even from the sheep. And so Paul was keenly aware of this. He would say, I want to come to you to strengthen you. And then he says this, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. How much would that have promoted unity among the Christians in Rome to have the esteemed Apostle Paul write a letter and say, I'm coming to you and I'm going to encourage you, but you need to understand understand something. I'm going to be encouraged by you. The youngest of Christians in that Roman church would have thought, wow. Wow. I can have an impact in the great apostle's life by his own words. That would have promoted unity. The second thing that I think we see from Paul that promoted unity was in chapter 12 where he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul would say, you go to the, to the, to the lengths of the earth the best as you can to maintain peace. And if it doesn't happen, you can stand conscience free that you did everything you could to maintain peace. And then finally, I believe that we have his pastoral heart to maintaining unity in the church, in the Roman church, was his exhortation to the high priority of love. Of love. He would say in Romans thirteen eight. 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Now, this doesn't tie in directly to Romans 9. I'm sorry, Romans 4, 9-17, and Abraham's example. But, The teaching comes alive when you see the instruction bathed with pastoral care. That when you see the pastor's heart, as he speaks to them, as he writes to them, it it helps us and it shows us, you know, the heart of the great apostle. And then when it comes to maintaining unity, those three things apply to us. Commit to mutual encouragement, exhort to be at peace with one another, and live with a high priority of love. All right, let's move now into verses 9 through 17. Now, this would address the second, um, the second argument of the Jews. They already, he already said the works is not going to do it, so they, that, that's done. Paul has addressed the Jews, their argument. Now, uh, he's coming to uh, the issue of circumcision and the covenantal sign of circumcision. These Jews would now say circumcision matters. You say Paul works doesn't matter, but circumcision certainly does. It is a covenantal sign. Now, this was something that wasn't new to the Apostle Paul. The Judaizers in in Galatia had already had already uh, caused much havoc. These uh, these hostile Judaizers had brought that into the Galatian church, and it was causing troubles among the new converts. In Galatians chapter five, verse one. Paul would write, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Notice the emphatic position he takes. He says, look, I, Paul, a Jew of Jews, I'm telling you, it does not count. So very emphatic as he tries to correct this error in the Galatian church. He would also close out the Galatian letter with the same issue. And I saw what a wonderful contrast he is making. He is distancing himself and Christians from the effect of the gospel through the cross and the ritual of circumcision. He would say this in Galatians 6. See what large letters I write to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. We already see the poles that are different. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And that's exactly his argument for the Romans, for the Roman Jews. But when, Je- when, when Paul writes this to Rome, he's writing to these Jewish Christians who are real. They're genuine. And he wants to show them the purity of the gospel and the justification by faith alone, in God alone, is the only way to be right with God. And so, yes, he's going to hit their arguments with the truth of the gospel but he does so out of a love for them. Now, if you look at verse 7 and 8, the Jews, where Paul would say in verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or the uncircumcised? He turns back, verse 9 draws us back to 7 and 8. It may be some of the Jews were saying, well, wait a minute, you're saying this, but David, David, David's one of our giants. He was a circumcised man. And that He says, blessed are those, it must be only for them. And Paul would say, no, it's not just for them. And I'm going to give you another example by another giant of the faith, and that is Abraham. So he would pick the two. Paul would pick the two that was held in the highest esteem by the Jews, David and Abraham. And he would show that neither of them were justified by a ritual or by a sign, but they were justified because of their faith in the promises of God. And so as you look at this, um, the three things that he's going to say, the first one in verses 9 through 12, he would say to be right with God, circumcision doesn't count. Circumcision doesn't count. And you say, well, what does this apply to us today in this context? You know, a lot. Because what we have to understand, that Paul is destroying any thought that you add something to salvation. Is that you add something to salvation. Whether it be works, whether it be a tradition, whether it be a ritual, whatever, Paul is making it very clear, and we need to be very clear on that as well, because there are so many people, as we saw in Sinclair this morning in the ABF class, he says generally people think that they're good, and that's true, even in the world that we live in, people generally think they're good, they don't see themselves as totally depraved sinners, and so you say, well, uh, this circumcision issue isn't an issue with us. No, it isn't. But there are other things that are issues with us. And we've got to be careful that we're not adding to. And the Jews would say, no, no, this, this matters. Let's look at verse uh, 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or the, also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteous. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? This would have been a very powerful question to present before them. In the power of simplicity, and that's a very important thing for us, in the simplicity, Paul would bring them face to face, face to face with Abraham in his state of being uncircumcised. He would go on. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He had received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the first first truth that he would emphasize again to these Jews and to the Gentiles because this would encourage them too. Imagine being a young believer and you have the Jews uh, coming down upon you and say, yeah, faith in Christ, that counts, but you've got to be circumcised. That's what happened in Galatian church. How discouraging would that be to a young believer? And how encouraging is it, discouraging it is to a young believer when we place upon a young believer expectations and requirements that are not God-given? And we can, we can weigh, weigh a new Christian down. I, I, I think Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was right on this. When you get a new convert, he says the worst thing you can do is try to get a new convert busy in church business. Now, I understand we're all called to serve, but the doctor's point was is that you need to nurture that new baby. You need to nurture that person in Romans 3, 26 through 31. Understand what salvation is. Understand theology. Understand the truth of the Christian life. Understand union in Christ. You know, Get them to understand what it means to be a Christian, and then watch how God uses them in service. But if you just employ a new Christian in service, is that you can fuel pride, you can create a critical spirit in that person, and you can find yourself doing much damage when you think it's discipleship, and it really isn't. And so in this issue of circumcision, it does apply to us. Is that we don't have anything to add to. And we want to keep this simple. Well, what was circumcision? You know this from the Jewish perspective. We all, all the way back to Genesis 17. And I won't have you turn to it. But in Genesis 17, 11, the words of the Lord to Abraham about this, this ritual. He was 90 years old. God has given him the covenantal promise that he would be the father of many nations. And he's to say this in Genesis 17 11, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Okay? That's, that's fine. That's the establishment of the covenantal sign of the promise. That's fine. But the Jews would say that you have to be there. And Paul would say, okay... This is, it was purposeful. It did matter. And circumcision did matter. It was a big deal. He says, but Paul would say, listen, you don't need, you didn't understand something. God declared Abraham righteous before that. It happened before that. In fact, it happened 14 years before that. In Genesis 15 6, we read, and he believed the Lord, and it ca- he counted to him as righteousness. So, there's a wide gap. It creates an impossible problem for the Jew. Is it Abraham is already declared right before God simply by faith? And so the Jew can't fast forward and say, hey, it's circumcision matters. You can't be right with God. And Paul would say, wait a minute. This happened a long time ago. Now, the purpose of, of, of Paul defeating the circumcision argument. Is to show, as we would see here in verses nine through twelve, well, we won't read it again. But what was the purpose? Was to show that he was going to be the father of faith for all, that he was going to be uh, the example of justification by faith that applied to Gentile uncircumcised as well as the Jew who was. And so, so the whole issue is God is is really issuing in uh, the new covenant family. And using Abraham as the example that says, Jewish people, you've got to lay aside these rituals. You've got to lay aside these efforts and understand that your great patriarch, so to speak, Abraham, he was justified with God long before you instituted the covenantal sign of circumcision. I think this is uh, interesting that Paul, in verses 29 and 31 of chapter 3, he already addressed this. He says in 30, since God is one who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we not overthrow the law? No. But in verse 30, he's already addressed this. Here's his patience. I'm thinking, listen, I've already told you this once. Why do I got to do it again? Why do I got to tell you again? And so often I wonder if that's the way I act. What do you mean you're doing the same thing over again? I told you once, why? Why do you got to have it again? I think there's a good lesson here for teachers, preachers, and Christians, and even parents. Repetition matters. Repetition matters a lot. You learn a lot by repetition. And repetition is so important. And so Paul is basically repeating his same thing in chapter 3. He is in chapter 4. And so repetition is how you learn. And that's why if you're going to renew your mind where Paul would say in Romans 12, which is the first application of the doctrines, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know how you renew your mind? By having the word of God repeatedly put into your mind. Over and over and over, the saturation of the mind with the scripture, so that you bleed Bible, as John Bunyan was, was known to, uh, uh, was characterized as. And I find that repetition, you know, it's, it can sometimes be boring. <laughs> Very boring. For instance, if you commit to memorizing verses, it's not, the hard part isn't memorizing the verse. The hard part is review. It's going back over and over and over. The discipline of over and over. That can actually, it just gets so monotonous. But I want you to think about this. Paul uses repetition often. And repetition is a wonderful way to learn. When I, when I was in the Navy, uh, every, while we were in port, which was rare, when we were in port... Six days a week, we had fire drills, import fire drills. I hated them. I mean, you work all day, and you're on the ship, on, on the duty section, and you know the fire drill's coming. It's usually right after the evening dinner, and it lasts for two hours. So you have this, they call out a, uh, a fire in the, uh, in, in the uh, supply department, storage, whatever, and the frame number, and where it all is, and the fire party would, would be called away, and they'd have the man up and dress out in all the ensembles and, and fight this fire this fake fire, and then you'd debrief, and so monotonous over and over and over. There wasn't a day went by that we didn't have a fire drill, and we would go to sea, and what would we do two or three times a week? We'd have general quarter, stations, general quarter drills. We'd go to battle stations and fight a, fight a battle, fight a, a war game, and we would almost always have a fire at sea, And here goes the rapid response team. Next thing you know, at sea, these GQ drills would last four or five or six hours. And imagine you've already been up for 18 hours, and now they're going to throw in a GQ drill, and it makes you want to say the recruiter sold me a bill of goods. (laughs) Until you have a fire at sea, until you have a fire in port, and I had both. A fire at sea is pretty bad. A fire on a ship anytime is bad. But you know the repetition of the drills over and over and over. Our fire teams at Sea and Port, they didn't freak out what to do. It was just an absolute reaction, and the fires were out in a matter of minutes in both cases, which it could have been disastrous, but they weren't. Why? Because of repetition. Paul is repeating what he already taught them. Because the Jews, let's remember now, they have been entrenched with this. And old habits die very slowly. And presuppositions take a while to get, get weaned out. As you grow in your Christian life, you are going to have crisis moments of your learning that's going to require re- repetition over and over. I know that when, when, when the Lord opened my eyes and I saw the doctrines of grace, it was like being born again again. again. What is this? Or when I listened to the first expositional sermon ever. I remember my wife and I coming back from visiting my folks in West Virginia. And we never heard this type of preaching. And we come across this guy named John MacArthur. You know, on the radio. And he talks one verse for an hour. And I was like, what is this? You know what it does? It creates an appetite. And so what do you do? You hear more, you hear more. But that doesn't mean what you held to before just goes away. And so the Jews, his patience and his, com- his commitment to teach them that justification by faith, apart from circumcision, you don't have to be circumcised. This was a hard pill for them to swallow. Yes, they get converted by Christ, but just because you get converted, your past isn't gone. Now your past with God is gone You stand right before him, but all that you brought into your Christian experience, that needs to be relearned in a different way. And so when he comes to them and he says that circumcision doesn't count and that Abraham is going to be an example with that, this would have been very difficult for them. And yet he shows this wonderful patience of repetition. And in his other letters, he would bring to bear this union of the Jew and Gentile. Because he knew, he knew, like himself, by his own experience. When he gets converted on the Damascus Road, do you think all that stuff just went away from Philippians 3? Do you think all of a sudden that his Jewishness just fell off? He had to grow through that. He had to be trained, so to speak. That's a powerful lesson for us. As Paul was patient in teaching that justification by faith does not occur through circumcision. Let's be patient with one another. Let's be patient with a young Christian who comes from a background that is not reformed. That comes from from, from a different background. All of a sudden they're discovering the doctrines of grace and and their world is being turned upside down. Let's be patient with them. As Paul was with them. And he would emphasize this oneness apart from circumcision in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11, he would say, Therefore remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He is recognizing the two communities, just like he is now in Romans. And he brings up the issue of circumcision, not the law, the circumcision. And he would say, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And so what we see then is that this this undercurrent in the Roman church is these new converts, these Jews, coming back from Pentecost, likely, is that they come in here, and they still have all the trappings of their Judaism, and they're coming in here, and Paul, in pastoral care, because of the Gentile uh, population as well, he's serving up this peacemaker role, and he's trying to bring them alongside, and understanding that the circumcision issue isn't an issue. And you can't impose that. And Abraham, the one who you revere, is the example for you. That he was justified 14 years prior to circumcision. So you can't lean on that as a means of being right with God. But I think it's important that we see the relationship of circumcision with faith as it applied to Abraham. Look at Romans chapter 4 verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision. And the sign was what? A seal. It was a sign or the authenticating, the seal was the authentication of the sign. He has a sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So basically, he gets declared righteous 14 years early. The covenantal sign of being righteous by faith was circumcision, and they missed that. They didn't understand that. This was the sign. For Abraham, the external sign of circumcision was the seal authenticating what had occurred to him in the past. When I, th- when I read that, and I, and I read some, some good people on this, it, kinda, it really changed my perspective. See, they looked at circumcision as a works to be right with God. God declares circumcision is a sign of the seal of righteousness by faith that was already declared 14 years earlier. And when it comes to seals, they're very important. Very important in the New Testament. It goes back to the idea of the king. The king and his ring. When a ring issued a decree, when a king would issue a decree at the end of a document, he'd put wax on the paper. He took his ring, he pressed down into the wax. It became the seal of authoritative authentication. Did you know, as a Christian, we've been given a seal as well? Did did Jews miss miss the the circumcision? Well, not a work. It was a sign of the seal of justification by faith. For us, we have a seal. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Paul ends that very long sentence when all the blessings are of, of, of what we have in Christ, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, election. But in chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In the same letter, Ephesians 4.20, he would say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you know what that sealing means? The king of kings has taken his ring and he has placed upon our salvation in the wax. He has placed upon us the authenticating authority that is done once and for all and that that seal will never be broken that seal will never be lost. And so as we see we see that the Jews were, were missing the point of that. We move into the new covenant and we see that we see that God has placed the, the seal of his spirit within us that authenticates our salvation. And you might say, "Well, how do I know I have this seal?" It sounds really good. Paul says, "You're sealed into the day of redemption." How would I know that I'm sealed? Perhaps you struggle with assurance of salvation. Sometimes you know, we sin, we fall, we get our eyes off Jesus and doubts come in there and fears and all that. How would we know? How would we know that we're sealed so that it's, it will never be lost, ever? Well, we could spend weeks on a series on the assurance of salvation, and we probably should. But here's a couple. Is it, how do I know I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit? Number one, look in your life and ask yourself, Do you have godly desires more than you do ungodly desires? Has God placed within you godly desires for the spiritual things of him? Do you yearn for his word? Do you yearn for heaven? Do you yearn for Christ? Do you yearn for prayer? Do you yearn for God's people? The natural person has zero desire in any of those things. And so you can know you're you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. by asking: Do you have holy affections or holy desires? Another way that we can tell uh, that we are uh, sealed is our attitude towards this book. Our attitude towards this book. Do you sometimes take your Bible and perhaps clutch it and thank God that he's given you his word? Has there been times that you've read your Bible and you ran out of time and you were sad that you had to close your Bible? Isn't there times that this word, not just to gain knowledge, but this word has become so precious to you that you find pages that are tear-soaked when you've been in the book of Psalms and you see the laments of David and you can say, oh, that's me. That's me. And perhaps that you've, you've been going through suffering and you're not doing very well. That instead of being a praiser, you're a complainer. And so, do you run to the, to the accounts of Jesus Do you find yourself opening up the Bible to the upper room discourse and you see the Savior in his last days showing tremendous love for his disciples and then you walk through and you observe Gethsemane and you observe the scourging and you observe the crucifixion and you find yourself at the foot of the cross looking up and you say, that's for me? How do you know that? Because of this. And how do you know this? is that because of the Holy Spirit. And so you can know you're you're sealed. The Jews obviously knew they were sealed, but they just had a misunderstanding of the the seal of the covenant. They understood because of the physical, uh, external sign of circumcision, which Paul destroys with Abraham. But for us, our sealing is internal. It's internal that manifests itself in holy desires and affections and our chief attitude towards this book. If you can go days without this book and it doesn't bother you, I think you should question yourself. Because this is life. This is life. And we go to this book for life. But we go to this book to go and find the one who justifies us by faith. Okay, so then paul would would, would use the the um, would address circumcision, and he shows the Jews that no it doesn 't because Abraham, as the example, he was circum- he was circumcised after he was justified by faith now let 's take a look at the next one, verse thirteen and fifteen here was the Here was the final argument by the Jews. they had spent a lot of time arguing with Paul about works they spent equally a lot of time arguing. With him about circumcision. They have one last gasp. They got all they got is one thing left, and that is the law. And in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Do you see the simple power of Paul's words? Like he did circumcision, very straightforward, very direct, not open for interpretation, straight as an arrow. Straight to the heart of the argument, saying circumcision doesn't count. And and guess what? No one is made righteous by the law. Verse 14, for it is the adherents of the law who are to be, be heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law where there is no transgression. Like Abraham being justified by faith prior to the covenantal sign of circumcision, he was also justified hundreds of years prior to the law of Moses being given. So that couldn't have happened. Jew, you can't say the law is necessary to be made right with God because Abraham was not only declared righteous before God prior to circumcision, but he also was declared righteous before the law was even in play. Hundreds of years so then the argument could very well be, which is so wrong, is that, and that wouldn't have been the Jewish uh, position. They said, well, then what's the use of the law? It serves no purpose whatsoever. We're justified by faith. I don't need circumcision. The law doesn't matter. Let's toss it out. Let's just take the Old Testament and just sever that thing and throw it away. Paul doesn't say that because in verse 28 and 31 of Romans 3, he would say, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is he God, the God of the Jews only? Is he the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also, since he is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And then he says, do we then overthrow the law? And the answer is, Paul says, by no means. That's strong language. We'll address that again when we get to chapter 6, by no means. Paul says, we don't throw the law away. In fact, there is no effective gospel preaching without law. You got to have law. The gospel is not the gospel without the law. That's an inseparable. That is an inseparable marriage, and it's a marriage that is in harmony. It's in contrast when it comes to being justified, but it's in harmony, because what is the purpose of the law? The, pa- the law is to show us we got a problem, as we saw in, a- in, in the ABS uh, um, section. What brought Paul to his knees? The number one thing that Paul lacked, and Ferguson brought this out quite well, is the number one thing that Paul lacked in his religious life was sin consciousness. He did not have sin consciousness. So you can't say, I asked Jesus into my heart, and I'm a Christian, and you have no sin consciousness. That's not conversion. There has to be some degree that you know. You know that you're in a bad condition and you can't fix that because the law has come down upon you in its thundering, uncompromising manner and showed you that you are a sinner and you can't fix that. And Paul is saying to the Jew, the law's not going to get it done. He says in verse 15, For the law brings wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the purpose of the law, as Galatians would tell us, it is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so I need thou shall not covet to show me that I've committed the sin of covetousness. It's interesting that if you look in verse 15, Paul would use the word transgression. He doesn't say there's no law, there's no sin. Nor does he say there's no iniquity. Now all three of these words define the total depravity of man. Transgression, iniquity, and sin is what we are. But he only pulls out one, transgression. David, in his great confession in Psalm 51, he would use all three. In Psalm 51, verse 1 and 2, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David was given a keen, was given a keen awareness by God of the total depravity of his person. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. The word transgression means crossing a forbidden boundary. The word iniquity means perversion. And it points to our nature. Sin means falling short of a, of, of a mark. Paul would choose the word transgression. Crossing a forbidden boundary. Why? Because the, the Jews were all, all about boundaries. They were all about these laws. These straight jacket laws. And Paul would say, you know what, that, what the law does? The law brings wrath because the law reveals transgression. It reveals that we've crossed a boundary. And what is the boundary? In Paul's life, it was thou shalt not covet. And in your life, it could be a different command. But whatever it is, the law comes to you in its power to show you that it's not by the law that you keep that you're just, justified before God. law shows you that you're not. And it establishes the need for Christ. And then finally, finally, and when I say finally, I really mean finally. (laughs) Verse 14 through 17. Justification is not by, it's not by circumcision. It's not by the law. It's dependent on promise. Promise by grace obtained through faith. Verse 14, for for if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs Faith is null and the promise is void. As I told you that law and gospel are an inseparable marriage, they're not in harmony, but they are married. Promise and faith is a happy marriage. Promise and faith is an inseparable, happy marriage. Because our faith is rooted in what? It's rooted in promises. And he would, verse 14, for it is the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise, notice how faith and promise are are linked together throughout this. And look in your Bible and you'll find that's true. That promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's opening the gateway here and saying, Gentile and Jew, here is the treasure chest of promises. And it begins with the promise of all promises. You could be justified, made right before God, clearly by his work on the cross by his son. If faith is voided, the inheritance is earned by obedience. And if that was possible, you would get to heaven and you know what happened? You would boast. I made it. I made it. You're going to be able to say that if you're a Christian. You're going to say, I made it. Thank you, Jesus. But if it's by the law, you're going to say, I made it. And you're going to look around and you're going to say, well, I didn't think they were going to make it. Because then you'll become a Pharisee and you'll look down on other people. But I want to close this out by looking at, you know, the richness of this. The richness of promises. And we'll look at Abraham exercising that next week. Which will be a wonderful encouraging study for us. God has ordained everything. From the start to finish in the Christian life. Is to be by faith in his promises. In Hebrews chapter 6 we are told. That he rewards those who believe he, he exists. And trust him. God wants to be glorified by the exercise of faith, not in our obedience, but faith in his promises. It's his promises. It's the amazing grace of his promises that bring, as he would say here at the end of, uh, uh, of, of verse 17, it's the, it's, it's the grace that brings the dead alive. We are saved by the, by the promise of grace. It's interesting that in Genesis, what did God do after the first, after the fall? What was the first thing that he did after the fall? Well, you know, it's in Genesis 3.15. What did he do? The first thing God declared after the fall of our first parents, he declared a promise. A promise. And it was a promise that would be applied to Satan and a promise that would be applied to humanity. I find it so interesting that God himself... Places the priority of promises as the very first thing he did in dealing with Satan and with humanity. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Very clearly to Satan, God has given him a promise is that you are going to be destroyed. You are going to be defeated. And implied in that is for us is the proto-evangel. Is that for us it's the promise of deliverance? For the Satan, it was a promise of destruction. For us, it's a promise of deliverance. And it continues every day for the Christian life. Abraham becomes the example of what it means to live by promises. And looking in his life, we're gonna see how we can live by promises. The Puritan Edward Lee, seventeenth century guy, he said, quote, God's promises are the grounds of our hope, the objects of our faith, and the rule of prayer. And so this section here that leads into the example, practical example of Abraham, it ends with Paul emphasizing to the Jew and Gentile alike that it's not by circumcision. It's not by ritual. It's not by law. It's by faith in the promises. And friend, whatever you're going through today, there is a promise that will hold you above the waters that you're drowning in. There is a promise that will hold you st- Hold you steady in the storms of life. There is a promise that is a rock that you can cling to no matter what you're going through because God has ordained that not only are we justified by faith through a promise, is that we live the justified life, life through promises. Peter would tell us in his second letter, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us the precious and very great promises. That by them, You become partakers of the divine nature. So, let's learn from Abraham how to apply these promises. Because we have now that Paul has concluded the argument. It's not by works, it's not by circumcision or ritual, and it's not by law. It's all by faith in the promises. And God, the promiser, is the one who cannot lie. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for for your love and these wonderful truths that you've allowed us to look at and May we apply it. May we see that we're not unlike the Jews that we have presuppositions and we have our own misconceptions that we need to work through and the justification by faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone for God's glory alone is radical truth. So may we have eyes to see and hearts quick to learn it and may we be patient with one another as we do learn it like Paul and may we see that there's nothing to add to our salvation that Christ has done it all that he is a propitiation for us, our redemption, as well as our righteousness. May we learn to live out that truth. and May we do so by faith that brings glory and honor to yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.